Well, hello, third placers. Welcome to another episode of the Third Place Podcast. This is an interview that coincides with our episode, Politics is a Good Word. And we're excited to introduce an interview with a new friend, David Burstein. David is a social entrepreneur, storyteller, and investor. So for me, very excited to have him as a guest just because we share some similar passions. He is the founder of Run for America and Generation 18, two organizations dedicated to improving American politics. He is the author of the best-selling book, Fast Future, How the Millennial Generation is Shaping Our World, and has regularly advised large organizations and companies on the many issues surrounding how to understand and engage millennials. He's a contributor to Vanity Fair, Fast Company, and has appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, NPR, and in the New York Times, Politico, Salon, and many others. We're really excited just to share with you this conversation and uh, take maybe a little bit more of an in-depth look at how politics works, what goes on in Washington, D.C., and, and honestly, like the hope that he has for the future and and why politics is really good and healthy. So welcome, David. David, thank you so much for joining us on the Third Place Podcast. We're really excited to have you. Happy to be with you guys. I get to to speak to two Davids today. (laughs) (laughs) Two, Two Davids are always better than one. Two Davids are always better than one. My oldest brother is David too. So I, yeah, I, I have an affinity towards you guys for some reason. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So obviously we're a week away from uh, the election. It's just a huge time in our country. For many people, it's a stressful time. It's it's contentious. It's something to avoid. It's something we can't wait for it to be over. But I, I'd love to just dive into uh, your view of politics. How did you get into politics? And and maybe we can even start with that. When you were growing up and you heard the word politics, like how did it make you feel or think? And how did that inspire you to, to take a career into politics? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think everybody has a different access or entry point, right? And I was extremely lucky, lucky and privileged to be able to have a, a what I think is a pretty pretty special entry point, which uh, I, I got to meet then President Clinton when I was about six years old um, on New Year's Eve, um, and in a large room, people got to ask him a question, and uh, I asked him, uh, you know, uh, today I probably would have come up with a better question, but my six my six year old self uh, came up with what the best part of being president was, which I guess mm. is no for a six-year-old. It won't be too hard on my six-year-old self. Um, but, uh, you know, and I got to stand in a room of people and, and, and hear him answer that. And to me, in that interaction, processing that as a very, very young person, what I took away from that was, you know, a sense that one of the things that made American politics so unique and so special was this opportunity we had to be in, to be in, direct dialogue with our representatives and, and, you know, and, and that may not mean everybody actually getting to meet their representative, but, but being able to theoretically have this direct dialogue with our representatives, at least at some level. And 
you know, it's funny because when I think about where I've been since then and the various different things I've done in the space, it all kind of tracks back to that. The broad through line, I think in a lot of ways is that our politics has become less that than it once was. Uh, and I think the dialogue between constituents and their elected and their elected representatives is really um, important. And it's not something that we're doing well. Um, and the further away elected officials get from being in direct dialogue with their constituents, I would argue the worse at leading and governing they become. Because there's a degree to which you know, people talk about this right in the context of town hall meetings and, and, you know, the various different people who, when something controversial is going on, they don't want to do a town hall meeting. Um, but, but actually, you know, I, to the degree that anything is required, it should be required of all elected officials to, to do a meeting with their constituents once a week, because just having that experience will force them to be more grounded in what their constituents actually want. Um, because in the absence of that, where they end up spending their time, is with a broad, uh, broadly problematic set of people who are not bad people, but 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 anybody shouldn't be monopolizing the time of elected officials. Um, and and I think you know we're we're, we're getting here to I think what what is really actually at the core of of the problem of our politics is just like any of us become the average of the you know five or 10 people you spend the most time with, it's true of everybody. Politicians are, are human beings. And sometimes the way we talk about our politics, we forget that. They respond to the same kind of incentives you and I respond to. Generally speaking, they don't want to lose their jobs. Uh, generally speaking, they, will, they can be influenced by people that are closer to them versus people who are further away, right? Um, and sometimes I, I find it's helpful to think of it in that construct because we can start to understand how to better address the problem. Yeah. I was, I was literally talking to my brother last night about this. So we're driving and um, he's, he's not, he does not want to engage in politics at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and he knows he has to vote. He's like, I think wrestling, he's still wrestling with who to vote for. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know where I, I honestly don't know how he's going to vote. And, and I th think that the, the conversation came up just around like healthcare, like, you know, he's younger. He, there was a time like he was mad at Obamacare. He didn't have insurance and he was frustrated at the penalties that the ACA placed on him at a young age. And, you know, we were just talking just about the economics of it. And I think to your point, like politicians are just so far removed where it, he was like, can they just have the same healthcare system that we have? Right, right. Like, and, and therefore, what he was really saying, then they would understand what we're dealing with and they'd fix it. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I mean but, but what you're really talking about there is empathy, right? Yeah. Which is the the, the difference, I think, in, between pol politicians historically who've been able to be effective and win over broad coalitions of people and people who haven't is is people with higher empathy. And empathy is is the ability. Well, I think I think your brother's point is 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 important. You know, to be an elected official you have to be able to imagine being in the shoes of someone who is totally unlike yourself. So if you, if you need to have it happen to you in order to do it, that, I mean, I mean, maybe it gets it done here or there, but ultimately that's not a good foundational principle in terms of the quality and the character of the people 
who run for office. Uh, you need to be able to have that. What it makes me think, I mean, first of all, it made me think of business right away. And just yeah. that the farther remove a CEO is from the ground floor, or the, the warehouse staff or anything that there's clear, it starts to fall away. And so I can relate to it from that perspective. And then starting to relate politics to business is then where my heart gets a little bit sad because I'm like, man, it is just business and it feels less human, I guess, in that way to me. But then the other thing I think of, too, is that I'm wondering about like your perspective of the way that we are um, electing these officials or recruiting, whatever it may be. Um, is it really leaning into or employing empathetic type people? Or is that process really not even serving the human perspective? No, I mean, I think think that's part of the problem is some of the work that I have done in politics has been broadly focused around these questions of talent recruitment. I really think part of the core challenge is we don't have the right people in office and we don't, but even more than that, we don't know how to think about that question because there's an increasingly wider gulf between what it takes to be a good candidate and what it takes to be a good elected official. So if you go back to, you know, the early uh, 1900s, right? I mean, you know, there are qualities in a a pre-television era, for instance, qualities like people's weight and people's physical appearance um, you look at some of those presidents in the in the 1800s, 1900s, a little long in the tooth, um, you know. And I don't know that many of those people would have made it in today's era, right? So that's just this is one easy to understand example. Um, but but overall, it's representative of a broad trend, which has been more. In, charisma has always been an important characteristic in leaders for all time, um, and and I and I do think it's it's. It's not without merit to that that you need a president who can have that kind of inspirational role. But one of the things that has happened is we've demanded more and more inspiration and charisma from our elected official potentials. And obviously true at the presidential level, but it's true but true across the board. Um, and so there are a lot of really talented, smart people out there who just don't have the skills to run the campaign gauntlet. Or maybe they do have the campaign gauntlet running skills, but they don't have the intellectual capability to actually govern. There's a lot of people who get elected on that basis. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that's one of the core problems is, is, is you don't actually, you know, if, and voters at the same time have gotten ever more emotional. So they're more, more desirous of uh, the people who are more charismatic, willing to kind of throw red meat um, you know, as we've gone on. So that's, so what you're talking about, Mary, I think is really one of the, one of the challenges because there's no, there's no one who's even saying here would be an objectively good set set of skills for these people to have. Go on a district-by-district basis and you're going to find people who value uh, the ability to work together or versus the ability to deliver for a district versus the ability to stand up for the current occupant of the White House or, or be against them and be a bulwark. So um, that's one of the big, big problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is why the people that I know that are, are disengaged from politics, it's almost a, well, what's the point? You know, the, the people aren't representing me. That's, it's just a popularity contest. And even hearing you talk about that, I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if there was some real damage that things like American Idol 
did for us because they turned voting into, they almost gamified it to where now we just need that big personality who can sing the best or look the best to be elected. Well, it's, it's yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly, certainly a piece of it. I mean, I, I think I, there's a broad trend in a social media and a media era, right? You really, I mean, just to go back to what we're saying, you can, you can, you can build a through line for this really with the Nixon-Kennedy debate which is obviously much discussed always when, when this topic comes up um, and all the natural evolution of that into what is it, you know, I don't think Nixon or Kennedy would be very good on Twitter. Um, right. So, you know, th- it's a different skill set, but every medium requires something else of people. And we're now communicating uh, in shorter sound bites mm-hmm. than ever before, shorter pieces of content. Um so you have to not only be able to inspire, but inspire quickly um, <laughs> and uh, inspire, inspire with a minute or two. So I, I, th- I think, I, but, but I think the other thing that happened to your point, Dave, is that there's, you know, someone like Barack Obama gets elected. You know, we, ha- we have this problem, which is kind of unique to the United States, which the, in which our executive basically is, plays three different roles. The, the functional head of the armed forces the basically emotional or inspirational leader for the country and the person who sets the legislative and policy agenda. You know, a lot that of other countries like have a, impossible for any right, one person right. to do. Exactly. And, and, and when people vote, some people are voting on the basis of one of one those, of those things, three, right? right? Some people are much more concerned about, you know, foreign policy or, or military issues. Some people kind of are like, who do I want to, who do I want to wake up and see on TV if something's happened? Um, and other people are kind of looking at a policy, domestic policy agenda. Um, and in other countries, right, they have premiers and they have presidents and they have, you know, heads of state that serve other functions or they have separate militaries, you know, or, or the, you know, not that the president is involved with that. So I've, I've often thought um, that, that it would be interesting or wise to think about something like that here. You know, people joked about Oprah running for president this time around, you know, if Oprah's job were to run around the country and, and, and to borrow the phrase from Bill Clinton, you know, feel people's pain uh, while someone else was in charge of running the government, that might not be the most terrible idea in the world. Um, you know, uh, but, but, but of course, of course that's not going to happen anytime soon, but it just, it just shows you how, how deep the needs are of people in their elected officials and how inadequate the current setup is for actually filling those, leaving us in a place where people are constantly underwhelmed, disappointed, and dissatisfied with their leaders. Yeah. I I have a quick question. I'm wondering, is there, because you've alluded to other countries and the way that they, um, they do their politics. I'm wondering, is there another country that you think has a gold star or gold standard that is um, that we could implement some things that would actually make more satisfied people. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things, if you look at the data around the world, I always just say the problems that we have are not hard problems. They're definitely solvable because other countries are solving them who are democracies. Um, we have a couple of things that make it harder. One, we're much bigger. We're much less homogenous than a lot of other places. Um, you know, right. You always hear these examples about things in, uh, in, in Nordic countries and, you know, the, how happy people are. But, you know, one of the things that's different about those countries is they have they have much more homogenous populations. Um, so they don't have to deal as much and as substantively with a lot of the, the questions we have here. Um, that being said, I mean, there aren't things that, that can be learned. So, so 
when you look when you look at the needs of people in those countries though if government if government is helping you have a good quality of life um and you feel generally good about the direction of the economy and the employment market and you have things that allow you to raise children and you know not fall into so easily into poverty um then you know, I don't think you demand as much of government. Because one of the things one of the things that's happened here in our country is the, the whole the whole system of governance that we have was set up in such a way as a republic, right? To to say, all we need to do here is have people vote on some frequency, two, you know, four or six years, depending on what office, for elected people, and then they can go do their work all year round, knowing that these people are good and trusted and confident. And then we'll come back in a few years, and then you'll get to weigh in again. Um, what's happened is that people no longer trust it. That system doesn't work if you don't trust the elected officials. So there's not a baseline implicit level of trust in those elected officials. That trust has broken down over the last 20, 30 years completely. So now what we have is people wanting to weigh in on every step of the process, which renders the, a republic system totally ineffectual because the people never who are elected never have a long enough leash to actually go out and make those decisions, right? And, and, and that's manifest in things like the way that polling works, right? Every issue is being polled and people can tell within a week of something coming up, you know, how it might play out in their district or not. Um, and that kind of real-time sentiment is problematic because that then becomes a factor in the debate or not. It doesn't allow people to, for instance, have a closed-door, you know, series of negotiating sessions uh, around something and then come out and say, we've come up with a great idea and allow people to look at that final product in totem, you know, right? The, the Constitutional Convention, if, if that had you know, if that had happened in this day and age, there's no way that would have gotten solved. The only way you solve these really hard, complicated problems in which people have really deep disagreements is is with uh, some kind of leash uh, to to be able to do it. Some kind of cover, um, you know, it, it, you can't do it in you know, just just sitting around back and forth uh, in, in the way that we do it now. Yeah, when it comes to things like let's just say healthcare, for example, like I've been so frustrated that it isn't this closed room. Like to me, I, like I own and have owned several businesses, you know, I, I'm looking at other businesses, best practices. I'm, there's lots of things to be able to compare to and lean into and, and I don't know, bits of wisdom that kind of can infuse into whatever conversation and then make a, an informed decision. And it's like, so when you, to me, something like healthcare, what's frustrating or why, what doesn't happen is, to me, to solve the problem is you bring in nurses, you bring in doctors, you bring in patients, you bring in healthcare officials, you bring in the left, you br bring in the right. And it's like, what does this really look like? Um, but I just don't think we're in a climate where we can even have a dialogue anymore. And that's just frustrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, the, the I always think it's helpful to try to deconstruct these things a little bit because we use these, right? So like, what are the preconditions for having a dialogue? Right. One of the preconditions is some baseline interest in what the other person has to say. Right. Some implicit trust in the system that that right. And oh, even that, even having implicit trust, and again, there's right. no trust, like you said. Right. So one of the things that keeps happening, I think, is people keep trying to do things that are definitionally not going to go well. 
right? Mm-hmm. So trying to convene a dialogue when the conditions that need to be present for productive dialogue to happen um, aren't there is useless. You know, it, it may seem like we need to do it or something, but it, you know, I think we need to do, need to be more cognizant of what is actually true or not and what is actually possible, possible politically in this environment, right? I mean, I think a lot of people talk about that in the context of, the election this year has shifted from trying from trying to woo over Trump voters to trying to you know, on the Democratic side to bringing new people out to vote and or activating people who you know didn't vote because because the the reasonable argument was made look you know why would we how, you know how many how many of these people who are listening to a whole different set of information than we are. Um, and who are clearly very steadfast in their support, are we really going to convince? But, you know, that defies some of the normal way of thinking about campaigns, right? Is that you try to go after, you try to bring some people from the other side over. And so there's a different reality for the way this campaign is being conducted, which also, by the way, has the byproduct of meaning that those people who are, who are supporting the president actually are getting even less, as time has gone on, even less... Uh, contradictory approaches to them, right? Because so many people have just kind of given up and right. you know, they're watching their own information sources. Um, so, you know. Yeah, we don't even have the baseline of what is fact or right. fiction right. at this point. Right. Like, all, the, all the things that are required. That's one that I actually think is a little bit more, has, has always been a little bit more um, disputed than people think. I, you know, people people like to talk about you know that it's it's a mask for really deep um, disagreements, and I would say a better way to say that is I actually think we don't have a system where everyone is the most invested in the country as the primary stakeholder at large, or their state or their district. Um, which, you know, the fights that people had and the facts people threw around for much of American history uh, over various different legislation were, were quite brutal uh, and quite antagonistic. And people definitely manipulated information left and right. But what they all really had motivating them was a lot of conviction and a lot of deep desire to see a good outcome. And they genuinely believed in, every, in, in many if not all the things that they were arguing or suggesting would be the best outcome. I think today there are a lot of people who are much more interested in outcomes for themselves, outcomes for their part, political party, um, right? We've had political parties for a long time, but we people have never been so interested in what's best for their party as I think uh, people are today in both parties, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so those the, all those conditions really change, again, the ability to have a dialogue or not. It's almost like I feel like you're saying, though, too, that people are there's just so much more ego, really, when you distill it down. Yeah. It's like that they that it's beyond um, what's right for the party or for the collective. And it's more about uh, how can I just be right? How can yeah. I just win? Yeah, in, in a way that I mean, that that's a definition of tribalism. I like to think of this analogy. Um, it's a great book. I'm forgetting the name of it. It just came out about uh, the the comparison, the relationship between politics and sports. You know, and I think it's really apropos because the way that we do politics now is very sports like. You know, 
the if, if you're a Red Sox fan or you're a Yankees fan, you could you know your team could do anything. They could you know your 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 second baseman could 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 kill people, you know, and 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 be sentenced with criminal negligence. You're you know you're they could lose every day, uh, and you would still be saying they're going to win this year. Oh, you know, I you still be going there, showing up, watching every game, and that's I think a useful metaphor to think about where we are realistically at right now in our politics. Uh, and right. as a result, all the incentives are constructed around that now. Um, right? There's no in, there's no incentive in baseball for you to root for a team that is not your team. I've I've said that often. Uh, you know, I've I've gotten more politically engaged over the last five years and I didn't feel like I was that disengaged, but it's definitely been something I am trying to be, play a better role, be a better citizen in. And I've, I've been frustrated again. Like I look at sports as like this ultra competitive, it's us versus them. And it's just, it's kind of infused in our society and therefore it's infused in our politics. But even just now hearing you talk, uh, like I love baseball. Um, I live in Cincinnati and, just a big Reds fan and grew up watching the Reds and the, the whole Yankees Red Sox thing I can, I can relate to because there's truly, they hate each other. But at the same time, if there is no other team, there is no baseball. And, and you know, that like, you yep. know, that's where I'm like, why aren't we realizing that we need each other? There is value in a conservative perspective, balancing with a, a liberal perspective. And, and uh, one of the things that you said, earlier like one of the beliefs that seems to be gone right now is that we at one point we all believed that what we were doing and what we were working on was for the best interest in the country and that's why you and i might disagree on the path to get there but we at least had this underlying belief that you were looking out for the best interest of the country and we agree to disagree on on the way to do it right now that's gone yeah well yeah no I, i think i think you're absolutely right um, I think the challenge has become if, if we don't agree, um, that's fine. Um, but if there's no incentive to agree, that's where it becomes problematic. I, I look at the whole system in terms of incentives. So what is the incentive for someone to work with someone else? If there is none, then people will not work with each other. Um, so then you, you, you one of the things we can't do is expect people to act against their own interests. And I think we constantly have this expectation that somehow our politicians are supposed to be these noble, you know, servants who are going to humbly sacrifice themselves. And, you know, I, I, that's a nice idea. It's never really been true. We don't ask ourselves to do that. Um, and there have been looked at most of the things that, that politicians have advanced and gotten credit for have they've advanced and they've also advanced them. They haven't, there are, there are a handful of examples you can point to of people who, you know, really who cast a deciding vote. There was a uh, congresswoman from Pennsylvania who cast a deciding vote on Clinton's budget in the nineties who, you know, all but knew that she was going to get voted out because of it. And she Mm. did. And so there are people like that, you know, along the way. Um, But they're, but they're really the exception. Mostly people who, 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 who do important, and consequential things in politics are acting in their own interest. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, today, I actually had just listened to an interview from Susan Page, the moderator from uh-huh. the vice president debate. 
And she um, was talking about, I guess she's working on a biography for Nancy Pelosi. Uh Um, Yeah. Yeah. And she was, she told a story and and I actually felt the opposite. Uh, So apparently Nancy Pelosi's plan was to retire in 2016, Mm -hmm. but then on election night, it's like, she's, she's old. She's ready to like spend time with her grandkids and write a memoir. And um, on election night, 2016, as Donald Trump was becoming clear that he was going to win, she put all of that on the shelf. And uh, the so the person that was interviewing Susan Page said, you know, what do you think her plans are? Like, just kind of guessing. Yeah. And, and their comment was, she probably will, assuming if the polls happen today, and we're recording a week before this publishes, but if the polls happen today, it looks like the uh, Democrats would take the presidency, the Senate, and the House. I was, I was actually careful about polls, but... yeah. Right. But th- that is at least a possibility. And that um, for her, the next two years would be, she would still remain for the next two years to try to unpack the last four years and just try to, mm-hmm. and to me, what I heard, the point of that though, is whether all that happens or not, the point of what I, what I heard was like, well, there was a version of self-sacrifice in that. Like she's even, even mm. not, putting pause on her retirement was a version of sacrifice. It's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll do what I need to do to keep this thing balanced. So I really appreciated that perspective. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, look, I mean, I, I, people do, do sacrifice their families. Um, and their again, this is why I kind of say the importance of the human side, understanding who people are and, and, and why did they do this? Um, and there are a lot of great people in politics, I think. Um, the system does not really support them. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting because it, it's, I think it's worth thinking about this. Like, we really just don't think about politics as a, as a workplace, right? We don't think about it as a, as a place where people need all the same things they need everywhere else to thrive. The way, for instance... You know, it, this this might be some stuff that, that that folks might not be so familiar with. You know, do you know the average congressional staffer is paid between thirty four and forty three thousand dollars a year, right? Mm-hmm. So what that means is the only people who can afford to be congressional staffers and live in Washington D.C. year round are basically people who have their own independent source of wealth or their parents are willing to subsidize their income, and and, and the way those people are treated the way they're paid, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole series of problems around that. And that's one of the foundational building blocks. I mean, it, you know, it got a bunch of attention around all the me too, um, you know, conversation two years ago, but you know, there's no HR in government. There's, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a member of Congress and you feel you're being personally, you know, attacked or, or made uncomfortable in your workplace by somebody else, you know, they didn't have a women's bathroom in the Senate until two years ago. I mean, what? Fun facts by David. <laughs> and these things might sound trivial. We've got an election coming up, et cetera. But, but I think we need to reorient our thinking about government around to what is the, you know, how do, how do, when, what makes you feel good and able to do your best work? What makes you, as, as you know, whatever your job is out there, you know, uh, able to thrive and think best and, and what kind of environment not not just focused solely on the environment we as voters and citizens are created, but the actual place where people go to do their work. 
Yeah. Uh, because there's a lot more ways that that could be much more supportive. There aren't, you know, people, people have talked for years about the change that happened in the 90s from a, uh, what was basically a, a, a congressional schedule uh, that required people to be in Washington basically, you know, all week, every week and go back to their district for kind of a month here or there to a, to a new schedule, which is a current schedule, which basically has them there three days a week, which means they, most people don't want to buy a second house in Washington. So they go home on the weekends, which means they don't enroll their children in the same schools, mm. which means that they don't go to soccer practice and see their political colleagues, you know, at after school activities, um, which means that, you know, they don't get together and hang out on the weekends and have drinks, and, you know, all those kinds of things. It's not a coincidence that when that schedule was in place, we had a more cooperative uh, kind of governance. Um, was not perfect. That's so fascinating. I mean, yeah, it, it makes so much sense. Like, I'll get wrapped up into work. Like, I'm part of an 80s cover band, just something for fun, right? And we play music together because it's fun to play music right, together. But right. when we practice, it's work. And right. we realized, like, wait, when was the last time we all just went out for a drink and just right. were with each other? Because we were friends before we did that. So to put it in that same context. What you realize after you do that is actually essential to your ability to. Totally. It's not a side thing. And I, you know, it, it, right. We have, we have a fundamental biological need as human beings to be in community and be in connection with other people. And, you, you know, it's, I would defy anyone to find an example of a workplace where people have worked worse because they've formed closer relationships with the people that they've worked with and feel more comfortable, more safe in the environment. There was a, you know, there's, there's a, there's a great story. I once met this guy. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. He's a real kind of character um, out of the the seventies and eighties. I think he was, he was in office from maybe the, maybe the mid to late seventies to the, to the mid nineties. This guy, Malcolm Wallop, he was a Senator from Wyoming. And he told me this story about, he was the lone vote in the United States Senate. Uh, in the in the 90s, to to keep open the Senate bar uh, in a in a vote where they were you know it was in the midst of all the you know cost cutting and and pork pork barrel spending and I don't know, the cost was a couple million dollars a year maybe maybe a million dollars a year I forget the number exactly that the Senate paid you know for drinks and things to have bar and he said he was the only person who voted against it because he said it was the only place where anybody talked. Yeah, and I don't like to over romanticize these kinds of things, and they're all kind of you know these are these are anecdotal, but I think they point to this larger concept of it's kind of we've I guess we've been talking about throughout here of making governance more human. If we look at the people who participated in as humans, we look at the incentives. It's just a much better way than to look at well, we need we need campaign finance reform, because campaign finance reform, while we should have it, be better certainly than not, doesn't actually end up fixing a lot of the problems because people still need, people still are incentivized. Okay, so now now I only have, now I can, now I'm capped at $100,000 for my campaign. Well, great. I still need to win. And the incentives in winning are still the same. So, okay, now I spend a little bit less time fundraising. I spend a little bit less time, you know, all those things are, you know, net improvements to the system but they don't fundamentally change the incentives, right? Because people still need, still need some money. They still need to get elected. They still need to be competitive. They still need to throw out the, the red meat. They still need to draw a contest with their opponent, right? Um, and it doesn't really fundamentally change much. 
I, I hear you talking a lot about just how the lack of connection and lack of hum- being human or human connection is one of the greatest problems with the current yep. climate. And I'm wondering the work that you do and how that impacts this problem. And, you know, what is a day in the life for David? Uh, yes. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, I have spent basically uh, the last, most of the last 10 years, um, you know, working on these issues in various different ways. And I currently actually split my time between political work uh, and work in uh, the mental health space, which which is which really actually I got into uh because of my experience in politics and and really forced me to think about a lot of these questions about what creates human thriving and well-being and how essential that is if anyone is going to do good for anybody else they have to be able to do that for themselves first um and it may sound cliche to people but i think it's one of the things that's really missing from our politics one of the reasons we have a we don't have a human-centered view of things like healthcare or these other kind of issues is because the politics process and the system it's operating in is not human centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it creates that kind of problem. So, um, you know, I, I've worked hard to through an organization that I founded called Run for America, uh, as well as through helping and working with individual candidates over many, many years uh, and another organization I ran prior focused on voter registration um, to really look at those fundamental building blocks. How do we change the participation of people in to the system? And how do we change the people who choose to run? It's kind of like thinking about it as a house. You know, these, these things are really on the ground floor. You can't get up to the next floor without going through the lobby. And that's really where you find these fundamental building blocks. Uh, and one of them is, is just a, a different kind of person. And, and, and look, admittedly, when I started thinking about this question, it was really, um, it, it seemed really opaque, but you know, we broke down what makes a good leader, what makes a good candidate, which of those skills can be taught, which of them have to be innate. You know, things like integrity, is not something that you can teach people. Mm-hmm. There are other things like um, h- how to kind of stay true to your principles that actually are skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 do you have principles is not a skill. But th- but there's an important difference there because when people go into the system, one of the things that I've seen over and over again, having been close to many people who've been in Congress over the years and, and had these kind of frank conversations with them along the way, is is they find it really difficult to actually stay true to those principles. Um, they came in really solid about them, but you know the, the system again. The system doesn't work to support them. So mm-hmm. every literally every day, they're confronted or challenged by by staying true to their core principles. So it's again an unreasonable expectation to expect that everybody's going to figure out how to stave that off without some kind of extra preparation or support. I remember. When John Kerry was running for president, you know, one of the biggest things against him was that he was a flip flopper, right. you know, and right. And and I'm hearing some similar things around Kamala Harris, but I'm looking at Kamala as uh, from my perspective, I see it's more of an evolution of changing. Like there is this core value of principle. There is this core value of 
I don't know, being a good prosecutor and fi- and dancing between uh, police support and criminal justice reform, right? And so, of course, her in that world because there's such a dance of that fine line. Of course, your your opinions are changing. Your opinion, you're growing up, and I see it as a sign of maturity. And I think it's rare. And I think to your point, how do we? <sighs> Is there a way to even reset the system so that when we let's first get better people in office, I'm curious your thoughts on how do we do that, but then how do we also get it to where it's a system that doesn't eat them, eat them up and chew them back out and, and transform them in a negative way? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really tough because the kind of reforms that we need are, I mean, again, we talked earlier about campaign finance reform. It's, it's hard to pass. It's been hard to pass. Um, but, but practically, it's pretty easy to understand. And there are a lot of different proposals for it. I, I always like to say, I wish that there were more people in government who were taking cash bribes, because it would be easier to root out the problem. And you could just arrest all those people for corruption. <laughs> things, right? Because it almost makes it worse because that's not how it happens because the, the ways that it gets into people are much more subtle and insidious. And, you know, people get people, you know, donors very rarely actually ask people, you know, I gave you this money. I need you to vote this way. They come in and you hang around them and you spend time with them and they tell you their ideas and you're hearing more of their ideas than other people's ideas. And, you start to think, you know, geez, that person actually isn't so bad. You know, everybody says they're, you know, a terrible blank. Uh, and, you know, they're nice and they have some good ideas. And, and you start to just become favorable to their ideas because you start to like them personally. Mm-hmm. Right? These, these are kind of the ways that these kind of things get in. So the whole system needs to be rewritten. I mean, look, most of the changes don't actually require changes to the Constitution. Again, we've been talking mostly here about Congress. Um, but, you know, and, and kind of the federal government. But it's also important to recognize here that the, the one of the reasons this stuff plays out very differently at the local level is because necessarily being a mayor is much more tied to tangible achievements. You know, you, you if you run, if you're the mayor of Chicago and, and snow doesn't get plowed, people are upset and you know about it. And so you're forced to react. Um, and that's a very direct you know, impact on people's lives because that's where they live. That's where they see everything a day. You know, it, one of the problems with the federal government is we don't always see or understand what the role of the federal government is in our lives. So the way we tend to judge their performance, that's why it more easily defaults, defaults these kind of tribal mechanisms in a way that mayorships typically don't. It's a little bit different at the gubernatorial level because that kind of sits somewhere in between, again, that place where you can have that tangible sense on your life, you know, usually a mayor or a city council is the most kind of di- easily divisible unit that you can connect to their decisions the most because they're ruling on plastic bags and whether or not they can be banned or not and how streets, you know, and public transit should be funded and all those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I mean, that to your point, that's something that we talked about um, in our episode last week was when politics is working really well, we don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. Like when we turn on the water and clean water comes out, that's politics at work. When we drive over bridges and the bridges are safe to drive on, that's politics at work. It's only when the things fail that we see it as a problem, you know, and the failures are the ones that bring out all the talking points and, and the necessary attention to action. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's and, and and people don't get people don't get voted out for not working together. In other words, the argument that someone hasn't accomplished anything is not usually the reason that they get voted out. People make that argument. Uh, usually, the more effective version of that argument is that the person has lost touch with their constituents. You always hear about this, right? Someone has a house, you know, their their kids are registered or their everything's registered at a house in Washington, not in the place where they live, right? Or so those kinds of things are they're a proxy for not effective out of touch or whatever. But they but 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 if you just say Joe hasn't gotten anything done, so he should be voted out. You know, if you think about your job, right? If, if you haven't done anything all year and you've been a dead weight on your team, do you get rehired or do you, are you asked to leave? I mean, you know, who, who, who has that kind of job, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about, again, just, just all the ways the system is working very poorly. So then, I mean, I'm wondering, how do you get the average, per, average person to engage? Well, look, I think people are restricted to voting, which, you know, despite all this, voter participation is going up, right? Um, and it, it, it... Do you have any, like, stats around that? I feel like yeah, that would be something you would have in your brain. I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, look, overall voter participation is is it is still hovers around 60% in presidentials, which, is, okay. which does not put us in the top um participation rates in the world uh-huh. um it's a little bit complicated because because the way that our voting system is has changed so dramatically and and voter participation was much higher at the very beginning of the the country's history um but it was also obviously restricted to a pretty small number of people mm. so, but the reason why i point that out is because that was a time period where everybody was deeply invested in the success of the government, right? Because it was a new, you know, we were a new country uh, and people were eager to see things work. And so they felt that their, their participation was essential. And I think today we don't, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we're disengaged. We've talked about some of them here. Or also not, it's not instilled in people early on. And, and, and also, you know, one of the things that's interesting, it's been interesting among, amidst the, the coronavirus, when you look at countries like Italy, uh, and particularly European countries, I think are, are interesting to look at. Because in Europe, people have this ability to trace their heritage and history back, you know, for a thousand plus years. Right. And so the idea of nationalism, you know, when someone in Italy says you have to do something for Italy, it's much more resonant. Then here where we, you know, we have basically about 250 years of history. Yeah. And so we've, we've interpreted some of these things and concepts like freedom as being more about privilege than responsibility. You know, and, and freedom doesn't mean I should be allowed to do whatever I want. No government agency or, or elected official can tell me what to do. And, and that doesn't even make any sense because government officials and laws tell us what to do all the time. But it's kind of been perverted over the years into something that I think has become really foundational for a lot of people there, the way that they understand or interpret freedom. And for instance, that that freedom means I should have the right not to vote. Yeah. 
which which is, is something I've changed my view on over the years. And I, I think it would be good to have a compulsory voting system in this country, you know, or an automatic voter registration system where people are just automatically registered when they turn 18 to vote at minimum. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the arguments against that is that somehow, an, you know, anti-freedom because people should be given the right to choose to opt out or not. Yeah. When, when the, a lot of mask mandates was first coming out, I, you know, lots of people saying, you can't tell me what to do. You're squashing my freedoms. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm going to start driving on the left side of the road because you can't tell me what to do. Like we, I'm like the context is where we live in these rules all the time. We just are so used to them. That is okay. Well, David, this has been just a fantastic conversation. I feel like I've learned so much, just not even around American politics, but having it in context with some global politics has been really helpful, like the nationalism conversation. I would love to ask this last question, though. Um, Like, I think for many people, so many people feel hopeless around politics. What about politics gives you hope? Look, the United States government is the single most effective scaler of solutions to large, complex problems when it chooses to be. We've got basically clean drinking water for, for most people. We've got interstate highway system that works pretty seamlessly. We've got uh, a system of commerce across state lines that allows us to do amazing things. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot we can do. The problems are not uh, so intractable. We say that a lot. We have these big intractable problems, but that's not the challenge. The solutions are out there. It's just uh, that we have to have and find the courage as, as citizens and voters and as leaders to actually take take the hard choices along the way. And people do do that from time to time. And, you know, we're in a moment where I think a lot of people feel really acutely the pain and the concern. And those tend to be the moments where we actually end up doing the most. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate in some ways that we have to, you know, it has to be darkest right before the dawn, but that's that's how it's always worked. If you read, if you read the hero's journey, if you read any of these kind of fundamental texts that are that are repeated over and over through mythology, through history, through through time, you know, the, we can't get to progress without pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. It's just how it goes, uh, it, and it would be better if everybody knew the right thing to do all the time without that without having to go through it, but but that's how it works. And so I have a lot of hope that in this period we're going through right now of great turmoil and great stress and great pain, that ultimately on the other side of that, it means that it will provide at least some opportunity for things to be better for some group of people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful. I think that the discomfort serves such a purpose. And I think that you said that so eloquently. So thank you. My pleasure. It's great to be with you guys. Enjoyed it. We had loved every moment of this and thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us on such a present matter. Happy to, happy to. Yeah. And where can people find your work? Um, you can find me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at David Burstein or Instagram at David Burstein. And uh, there's lots of stuff online. Just, just, just Google. You can find it all. <laughs> awesome. Just Google. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you. Be well.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Super insightful. Again, just kind of behind the scenes of a little bit more of the nuances of politics. And ultimately, I think legitimate hope, how we can all play a more active role in our political system, what that role means, and and really how we can be engaged with bringing some of the changes that we're looking to bring. Uh, I'd love to encourage you just to pass this on or pass our other episode on to your friends. Please, please, please comment on our podcast feeds, both on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get our podcasts. Ratings go a long way to be able to share the work that we're working on, and that's just a great way to support what we're doing. Also, specifically, every episode that we produce, we're trying to make super interactive. So one of the things that we really enjoy is creating a music playlist that goes along with each of the themes of the topic. So there is, if you check out on Apple Music and on Spotify in the music section and search for Third Place or, again, sign up for our newsletter or go online to our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, you'll be able to see the links to these playlists and get those. And it's music that just talks around the topic and it's interactive. You can add and you can comment, but mainly, like, engage with it. Music is just such a great way to express our feelings around these difficult topics especially sometimes as we don't have the words for them so that's just another great way to engage with us as we unpack these difficult conversations so check those out engage with us review us uh, like us give us feedback you can always email us david at or mary at thirdplacepodcast.com and we really just thank you so so much you're engaging in a larger third place community. Be well.